Well, good morning, church. Glad to join you on this Sunday morning. If this is your first time here. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors. And again, I hope to see all the members stick around and join us after service for our members meeting. And if you're, again, somebody who doesn't know what membership is, we are offering membership classes next week. And if you just want to know what it's about, you don't have to commit to all the classes. But if you want to come to that first meeting, you're more than welcome to. We will serve snacks as well. And we're going to explain what membership is at our church. Uh, we're also going through, uh, if you've been joining us since last week at least, a new sermon series. And we're going to kick off the second week looking at the book of Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, if you turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have those, we have it on the screen as well. But Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 40 all the way to verse 47. So Acts chapter 2, verse 40 all the way to verse 47. If you grew up in the church, this is a familiar passage that talks about the life of the church. And we'll be diving deep into that starting in verse 40. So there's a large crowd here. Uh, the Apostle Peter, he just gave a sermon. In verse 40 it reads, And with many other words, he, meaning the Apostle Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the reading of God's word. So a few years ago, my mother called me randomly out of the blue, and she let me know on the phone, Hey, Tom, your cousin Bora is visiting from Korea, her first time coming to the United States. Would you and your wife, Lena, would you be willing to show her around town since this is her first time in the States? And I remember when I heard that, my reply to my mother was, who's Bora? I never knew I had a cousin Bora in my life. Didn't know she existed until that moment. And here she was, my mom wanting to have me show her around town. And if you've ever experienced something like that, you know that you just don't ask questions, you just do it. And so what happened was I went and I picked up my cousin Bora and there she was, a 25-year-old girl who I did not know, did not know she existed at that moment until then. And when we hung out, kind of awkward. Language barrier because she did not speak English at all. She only spoke Korean. And if you know me, I speak zero Korean. Uh, huge cultural barrier. She grew up in the East. I was raised in the West. And so we had nothing in common there. And I just didn't know her. It's like hanging out with an adult stranger, showing her around town with my wife. But what's interesting was, despite that, I felt this responsibility that I need to show her a good time. I felt this burden to want to connect with her and to try to know her. So my wife was like our translator to get to know each other during those conversations. And the reason why is because, even though I didn't know who she was, my cousin Bora, she's family. She's family. And so I tried to know her despite the barriers that were there. Last week, we started a new sermon series called The Family of God, where we examine Jesus' radical redefinition of what makes a family. Because when we think of family, we think of blood, kinship, 
family lineage. We think of those who are related to us when we think of family. But last week in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 34, we saw that when Jesus thinks of family, he thinks of those who do the will of God. It's those who follow the will of God, those who are God's people. He imagines the people who gather in the church. And the reason why he saw those people as family is because when you follow Jesus, you are now adopted as sons and daughters. You now have a heavenly father, and you now also have heavenly siblings. And so if you follow Christ, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, you're, you don't have an option to relate to other people as acquaintances in the church. People in the church are not meant to just be mere people who you gather together on Sundays. Not even friends. They're not meant to just be friends. But in Jesus' mind, when he sees the church, what he says is, you're meant to be like a family. You're meant to function like a family. But here's the problem. Many of us here, even though we're part of a church, we might be at this church, or if you're visiting, you might be part of another church, you see each other and know each other like I know my cousin Bora. You don't even know you existed. You're not really familiar with one another as a church. We don't even know each other, a lot of us here. And I think the reason why that happens is because we have to keep in mind that there's a difference between being part of a family and being part of a healthy, thriving family. There's a difference between being related to family and being involved in family. There's an author named Stephen Covey, and some of you who is in the business world, you might have heard of him. He really into the, has these titles called the seven habits, like the seven habits of a healthy team or the seven practices, healthy practices of a leader. Well, he actually has a book that was published in the late 90s called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. And what he says is that families, they're not naturally close. They don't naturally thrive, but there are certain family habits that families must do in order for them to actually feel like an involved family. He says this quote, there are certain fundamental principles that govern in all human interactions and living in harmony with those principles is absolutely essential for quality family life. They're not quick fixes. They're not a bunch of practices or to-do lists. They are habits, established patterns of thinking and doing things that all successful families have in common. Did you see the last part? Patterns of thinking and patterns of doing things, that's how you cultivate the family. And perhaps that's why a lot of us, it's really hard to imagine people you gather with on Sundays as being family because we don't feel like it's family. So what does it look like for a church to be a family? What is the type of thinking, the pattern of thinking, as Covey says, the pattern of habits that we're supposed to have in order for us not just to be a family, but to really experience family here? While last week, Mark chapter 3 explains what it meant for the church to be family, I believe in Acts chapter 2, the passage we read this morning, it shows what it looks like for a church to be family. And what's interesting is when the church understands this, it radically changes how people view the church. You see, today, oftentimes what you hear is that people, I like Jesus, I don't like the church. But back in the first century, people were drawn to Jesus because they liked the church, because of the church. And the reason why is because the church, they didn't just gather together. They didn't do these political campaigns telling you which presidential candidate to vote for. They didn't push their a strong agenda telling people just to believe 
but they related to one another and all those who joined them as a family. And today we're going to look at Acts 2 and see how we can do that too as a church. And so looking at Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at three things. Number one, we're going to look at a new way of thinking of family, a new pattern of thinking of thinking of family. Secondly, a new practice of living as family. What are the practices we're supposed to do? And lastly, a new power to live as family. What can motivate us or push us or draw us to do this? So a new way of thinking, a new practice of living, a new power to live. First, a new way of thinking about family. So Acts chapter 2, the passage we just read, here's the context. They are all together, this large crowd. And the reason why there's a large crowd that's together is because they are celebrating Pentecost. Pentecost, back in the Old Testament, it is a Jewish festival where they are celebrating the giving of the law when God gave uh, in Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments to the people. And so all, what happens is all the people, all of those who were Jews, and they're all spread out in different countries, in Egypt and outside of Judea and so forth, they all had to celebrate Pentecost at the temple, which was in Jerusalem. So there are thousands of Jews from different nations traveling to this one city to come and celebrate Pentecost at the temple. And what happened was in Acts chapter 2, earlier than the passage we just read, all of a sudden, the disciples were there, Jesus' followers, and a lot of us, if you grew up in the church, you know that Pentecost meant the Holy Spirit came down and filled the disciples. They started speaking in tongues and different languages that the crowds understood. And all of a sudden, in light of this, the apostle Peter, he starts preaching to the crowd. And he gives this long sermon in the book of Acts where he talks about how God sent Jesus Christ and he tells them, all the crowd to repent, to be baptized, and people actually converted. They became followers of Jesus. But what's interesting is after they decided to follow Jesus, Peter doesn't just go, okay, now back to your normal lives. Go back, now that you're a follower of Jesus, just do what you're doing before. No, Peter says in the book of Acts that he constantly exhorted them. Now that you're a Christian, here's what you must do, he says. Look at verses 40 to 41. It says, quote, and with many others, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort the new believers saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So interesting. You know how you live as a Christian according to Peter? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Why does Peter say this? Why this specific term? This phrase crooked generation, it actually comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And what it refers to is the people of Israel when they left Egypt and wandered the wilderness, they were a generation of people who saw the miracles of God but rejected God, did not trust the promises of God. And so what happened was that God, he vowed, no one in this generation shall enter the promised land. And God had them wander the wilderness for 40 years and waited for the last person of that first generation to die before a new generation was able to go to the promised land. And the reason why is because this first generation, it was a crooked generation. They had too much baggage that God said, this is not going to represent me in the promised land. And this new generation in the wilderness, they needed to separate themselves from this previous generation, which he calls crooked. Now, Peter, he's saying something similar. Peter is saying, you're not just believing in Jesus when you're a Christian, but God is actually raising up a new generation through these followers, through the church. He is raising a new people that are different than a generation in the context around them. Now, Peter is not telling them that as Christians, you must separate yourself from everybody. 
that you don't relate to people who aren't Christians. That's not what Peter is saying. What Peter is saying is separate yourself from the generational mindset. The ways of the world is not separate from the world, but the way the world thinks. And the reason why is because every generation in history has certain beliefs that are specific to that generation, and we are blinded to those beliefs because we just presume that's the way life is. We presume that's just how it goes. C.S. Lewis, who's my favorite author that I read all the time, he always exhorts people, don't just read new books. If your library is filled with only new books or your movies are only new movies, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to be blind to the idols of your time. Read old books. Read, watch old movies. Because then you will get a greater perspective of how different generations think and you'll be humbled a bit. You won't be so prideful that your generation got it right. Because every generation holds different worldviews. We presume ours is true and you see it even in recent generations. You see between the Gen Xers, the Boomers, the Millennials, the Gen Zs, we all have a different opinion about things and we all think we're right. For example, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is the purpose of career. Why do you work? Why do you pursue a career? What's the purpose of it? You know how Boomers think? Our parents' generation, the Boomers? The purpose of work is stability. You work to provide for your family, so you get a house, you can pay for education. Doesn't matter if you're a farmer, doesn't matter if you're an educator, doesn't matter what you do, so long as you provide for the family, you work, because the purpose of work is stability. Now, that's the boomers. If you're a millennial, if you're my generation, we don't work for stability. We don't pursue jobs for the sake of stability. What is our purpose? The purpose of work is meaning. We want to do jobs and get careers that are meaningful, that will change the world. doesn't matter how much we get paid. That's why in my generation, we're filled with teachers, educators, filled with doctors, OTs, PTs, social workers. doesn't matter about the pay. It's about changing the world. It's all about purpose. What about you Gen Zers? How about Gen Z? From my conversations, they don't care about stability. They don't care about meaning. Forget that. It's all about flexibility. It's all about, hey, I want a job that gives me the most flexible schedule so that I could live real life. Spend time with my family, travel, work remotely. Also, the tech industry is amazing because you can work at home. All of us, even within the past century, come from different generations. We have various views and various purposes of what work is, and we don't question it. We think that's just the way it is. And I'm not saying one is more right than the other, but what I'm saying is each generation influences us in a particular way of how we think about particular things. Now, what about family? What about family? How does our generation influence the way we imagine family? Last week, I showed a picture of our social lives, it kind of represented the social spheres of our lives. You see in the back, you can see the picture. And I said, basically, this is how most people today view their relationships. You have acquaintances in your outer circle, coworkers, friendships, but in this core is your spouse or kids or your, your uh, parents or siblings, depending on your age of life. And that's kind of how your social relationships work. And the church is kind of in that sphere of acquaintances and coworkers. We're just people you see every once in a while. And yet Jesus radically challenges saying, hey, if you're part of Jesus' church and you're a follower of Jesus, next slide, it's actually meant to look like this. 
The church is not meant to be in your outer sphere. It's meant to be in the core of your social relationships, not even just friendships. It's meant to be like family, like the deepest part of your social life. And I had conversations with people in our church this past week, and a lot of people said, you know, I've heard that kind of before, but not like that. I never thought of church like that. In fact, not only did I never think of church like that, it's really hard to really believe that. It's really hard to really practice and embrace that. Why? Why is that so hard for us to do? And I think the reason why is because our view of family, it's so set. Especially if you come from an Eastern Asian American family and you immigrated into the United States and that's your background because when you think of family, you think nuclear family. You think, again, parents, siblings, or spouse, kids, and those are the people you sacrifice for. Those are the people you're loyal to. Church has an event, that family has an event, family wins all the time, all the time, because that's your family. That's who you pledge allegiance to in your relational loyalty. So you can say all you want, yeah, church is family, but you're really only gonna sacrifice for your real family, spouse, kids, parents, siblings. Now that's fine, but uh, David Brooks, he's a New York Times writer, he wrote this fascinating article in The Atlantic called The Failure of the Nuclear Family. It's very fascinating, I encourage everybody to read that. And what David Brooks says is, if that's you, if you define family this way, where it's just your spouse and kids or parents and siblings, realize you are defining family in the way that most of history did not. You are a unique generation that sees family that way. Because throughout human history, every traditional society lived with their extended family. They all lived, not just the, nu the nuclear family, but they lived with their grandparents, their cousins, their aunts, and that was all family. All the same relationships there. Even in Western American individualized history, up until the 1950s, most people lived as farmers, and when you're a farmer, you need as much help as possible. So everybody lived with their extended family. It was never just the spouse and kids. It was always aunts, uncles, a village living together, doing life together. You know what changed all of that? According to Brooks, in the 1950s, all of a sudden, factories started opening. Factories started opening in the city. Single men started to move to the city. They did not need their extended family anymore because there are new opportunities, new jobs, new money. And what happened was they would meet somebody in the city, start a new family. They don't need anybody else because they're in the city. Everyone else is gone. Hence the birth of nuclear family, spouse, kids. Now, that's the image we have of family. That's the image most of you guys have walked in as that's my family. That's who I pledge allegiance to. That's my loyalty to. That's my love. But Brooke says, do you realize that that experiment failed? That it lasted from 1950s to 1965 and it's done? That is not the traditional family anymore. You know why? Because most families today, they don't have two parents and kids. Divorces happen. Separation happen. People stop having kids. In fact, today, less than one-third of households are that picture of two, spouse, of two spouses, parents, and children. It's an anomaly if you have a nuclear family today. But even though it's this unique 15-year period of how we think the ideal family is, 
is only 15 years in the history of mankind. And yet, if for some reason, all of us are still pursuing that, for some reason, all of us see that as the normal, and for some reason, all of us are loving only those who we call part of the nuclear family. Now, I'm not saying don't care for the nuclear family. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if you limit your type of family love to only your parents and siblings or only your spouse and kids, you have been held captive by this generation. Acts chapter 2, do you realize Peter, when he's talking to people, they're not all just Jews in the local area. They come from every different culture, all different places, east, west, whatever you might call it. And he calls all of them, save yourselves from the crooked generation that you all come from. According to John Lynn, he says like this, quote, Peter is basically saying there's something broken about every human culture and every generation. What that means is this, when you become a Christian, you have to re-examine everything. You have to rethink everything about how you live your life in the world in every possible area. Peter's not saying segregate yourself from the world, but examine everything. Don't be susceptible to what defines this generation. Save yourself from it, including how you view family. So what are some takeaways or implications for us? Here's a couple of them. Number one, your biological family is very important, okay? If you're a Christian or you want to be a Christian, just know to be a Christian means you have to care about your biological family. Jesus sees the Pharisees who were super religious, tied and did all this crazy stuff for the temple, and Jesus says, you brood of vipers, you're not caring for your mom. He rebukes the Pharisees for not caring for their elderly parents. The Apostle Paul when he looks at the church and he talks to Timothy, he goes, if you find somebody in your church and they're a member of the church and you find out they don't care about their families but they're being religious in the church, get them out of here. Not in our church. That's not how Christians function. If you want to be a pastor or an elder of a Christian church, the, one of the first questions is, how's your family? Your family healthy? You a good husband? You a good parent? Because family is emphasized throughout the New Testament as being very important in your life. It is one of the most important things in your life as a Christian. But here's a second takeaway. While your biological family is one of the most important things in your life, they're not meant to be everything. They're not meant to be everything. You know why the nuclear family failed, according to David Brooks? You know why it crumbled and it was only 15 years of an experiment? Family was never meant to be nuclear. Your family was never meant to just be your spouse and kids. It's not that your spouse and kids, they cannot give you the type of love and care and safety and nurture that you were created for. But if you limit and reserve a special type of love only for them and open yourself for a special type of love only for them, you're going to crush them with your expectations or you will be crushed by their expectations of you. And that's why today, more than ever, we see so much brokenness in families because we are depending way too much upon the family that it was never meant to be dependent upon. The family was not structured to be that way, and that's why you see that experiment, it didn't work. And that's Brooke's whole point. And yet for a lot of us, that's what we're experiencing. For a lot of us, all of our eggs go in the basket of family. And I'll say for a lot of us, family is really a lot harder than it's supposed to be. Because the third takeaway is this, God's people 
you are called to love, prioritize, and sacrifice not just to your spouse and kids, your parents and siblings, but to a spiritual family as well. The church does not replace your nuclear family, but the church is meant to broaden your, your perspective and your ability to love. It's meant to spread it out and challenge you to love and receive love in a unique way. So this is challenging. If you take Jesus' teaching in a very serious manner, this is a very challenging practice because it's calling you to rethink everything about your life. And so let me ask a quick question. Do you sense in your life that that's you? That it's all about my family and my family is my household and that's it? All your decisions, all your sacrifices, it's poured only and offered only to your household. When that happens, what you're doing is you're turning a good thing into an ultimate thing, and when you turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, it becomes an idolatrous thing. It becomes an idol. And slowly but surely, it's, not gonna, it's gonna crush you, or you're not gonna be fulfilled by it. Kent Hughes, he's an author, he says it like this, quote, many Christians and non-Christians alike, they've made family everything. Every moment of every day, every involvement, every commitment, every engagement is measured and judged by the question, how would this benefit my family? While this is generally commendable, it can degenerate into a familial narcissism. The four walls of the home become a temple and only within and for those walls are any sacrifices made. Family is a good thing, they make poor gods. And if a lot of us in the OC, especially in the Eastern background, that's the temptation. Are you making your family an idol? But here's the second question. Not only are you, are you making your family an idol, but are you willing to embrace the church being your family as part of your discipleship? You know, when I preached this message last week, and I preach it even right now, I'm like, nobody believes this. Nobody's gonna do this. We're gonna say, oh yeah, church is family, family retreat, but then our, our lives, like I just know, it's just not gonna happen. Or it's really unlikely to happen because it's really hard. We have our family. We just see that's our family way and we wanna treat Christianity, this is something else I do. I go to church and give my tithe and I read my Bible and that's it. But to see the church as family, do you ever see that that's a part of your discipleship? To deconstruct your worldview of relationship and reconstruct it according to the way of Jesus and Jesus saying this is real life, this is true life, are we able and willing to do that? That takes a lifelong journey that takes a lot of prayer and takes the spirit to work in all of us together. And so it's a challenge to fight the idolatry of family and to really embrace Jesus' new vision of family. Now, let's go to the second part, which is a new practice. We don't just need a new way of thinking, but we need a new way of practice if we really want to be a church that lives as a family. You know, when you think about the early church, how did they do it? How did they actually become a family? Because when you look at their circumstances, it didn't seem promising. This was a new church, a new movement. They had no ministries. They didn't have any life stage ministries or small groups. They had zero organization because it was brand new. And they jumped from 120 to 3,000 members in one night. Imagine us, we're a little bit less than 200. Imagine next week, 3,000 people come. Church is family, let's relate to each other. Man, that's chaos, that's crazy. But what we saw with the early church did, the reason why they're able to do something despite the difficult circumstances is verse 42. And they 
devoted themselves. The early church, they devoted themselves. Devoted, that definition, it means to give time, to have energy to do something. Think about when you devote yourself to something versus when you just do something. When you just do something, you give the minimum effort. When you devote yourself to something, you try the best you can. A lot of people are church, you're into golf, you're playing golf, guess what? I play golf too. I go to the range twice a year. So I, I do golf. But none of you are gonna invite me to play golf. You know why? Because I just do golf. Y'all are devoted to golf. When you're devoted to golf, you go to range twice a week. You research, you watch YouTube videos to fix your swing. Why? You don't just do golf, you're devoted to golf. Some of you, you like music. Some of you, you're into BTS. My kids are into BTS. I like BTS too. I listen to it maybe once in a while. But none of y'all gonna invite me to a BTS concert even though BTS is here in LA in a few weeks, I heard. You're not gonna invite me, why? Because you are devoted to v BTS. You know every band member. I can't even name one, you know them all. You don't even speak Korean, you still like them. And you know every song. Because you're not just liking BTS, you're part of the BTS army. You're devoted to them. Some of you have parents, they're decent parents. Some of you are parents, decent parents. But what we wanna be is a devoted parent, right? We don't wanna just make our kids survive. We wanna have our kids thrive. And that takes doing certain things. Not just the minimum, but the maximum. How can we do our best? The early church, what made them work is that they devoted themselves. They didn't just do certain things. They devoted themselves to certain practices. And it wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't like these crazy revivals or new ministry. Literally, there are three general things that the early church devoted themselves to that caused them to become a movement. Here's the first one. The first thing they devoted themselves to was something very simple. It's worship. It's worship. The early church constantly gathered to worship together. In verse 42 of Acts, you see them after they become a church. Verse 42, look what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, when you think of, when you see those action terms, you think, oh, I could do that at home. I could pray at home. I could break bread by myself. But notice that in this verse 42, it's not just saying apostles' teaching fellowship. Notice the definite articles. The apostles' teachings. The fellowship. The breaking bread. The prayers. Why the definite articles? There's a reason. The apostles' teachings. It wasn't QTs. It wasn't Bible reading. Because it's the apostles' teachings. They were not reading the Old Testament by themselves. There was no New Testament. So they would gather together and listen to the apostles preach. The breaking of bread. It was not just going to the source and eating lunch together. It was the breaking of bread. Meaning, this is what most commentators think, the Lord's Supper. They were gathering together to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Not just praying on their own. The prayers. These were prayer meetings. They were gathering together to pray. In other words, what we see going on here is the beginning of the Sunday church movement, the beginning of the corporate gathering. And what's interesting is they could have done it separately, but they made it a point to do this together because they're family and they saw this as being a significant part of being a family. You know, when I first married my wife, uh, and sometimes, you know, when you get married, you could be so busy that you don't really feel connected. And so sometimes I feel like, ooh, we're disconnected. What I would think is we gotta connect. So I would set apart going, hun, 
let's talk on Friday. And so we go to a coffee shop or after the kids go down, we sit down on the couch and I go, how are you feeling? What is, what's burdening you? Is there any like struggles that you have? And I just want like this deep, meaningful conversation because the way I experience intimacy is through conversation. The way I get close to people is if I know you, and it's not just a conversation, like a deep conversation. I feel very connected to you. Now, to my shock, my wife does not feel that way. After the third week of doing that, she's like, can we not talk? I'm so tired. I'm like, what? Don't you want to connect? She goes, yeah, I do, but can we go hiking together? I'm like, hiking? We don't even talk when we're hiking. She goes, I know, that's the point. Like, let's just go hiking. And so we go hiking, or we go to the beach, or we go to new restaurants. And I was so confused after those moments when after we're done, my wife would be like, I feel so close to you. I feel so close to you after that. Very confusing to me and so, until I started talking to other couples. I'm like, oh, every couple's like that. You have a talker and you have a doer. And the talker experiences intimacy through conversation. The doer or the activity person, they experience intimacy through shared experiences. And I realize it's just different things. It's just different ways of how you get close. And I actually appreciate it now. And it made me realize like, oh, this is actually why when you talk to most social scientists, if you wanna see a healthy, thriving family, they don't just talk to each other, but they have something called family dinners. The more family dinners your family does on a regular basis, the healthier your family is, your kids just kind of thrive more likely. And it's not, you don't have to talk about anything deep with your family when you have dinners. It's the shared activity, the shared experiences built over time that just deepens the bonds. When you come to church on Sundays, if you're like me, I naturally think I'm gonna come to get close to God. I'm gonna come to know God a little bit more deep. But Jesus and the apostles and the church is like, we come to the church so that we can know God and get deep with each other a bit more. Even if you're not talking deeply, the shared experience of worshiping before our Father, having this family dinner together on Sunday, that's what bonds the church because they're a family. It's through constant worship. Here's the second practice that they did. They didn't just devote themselves to Sunday worship, constant worship, but they also devote themselves to constant fellowship. Constant fellowship. The early church they just shared life together all the time. Look at verse 44 to 46. And all who believed were together, had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. The church back then, they did not just gather formally in the temple courts, but they gathered informally inside their homes. You just saw people in their houses all the time. They didn't just open their homes once or twice a year like we do for our coworkers or we do maybe for that person who lives near us. They did it day by day all the time. This was not something that was, they had to put in their schedule, like I'm meeting a church person today. This is just a way of life for them. Back when I dated my wife, I lived in a city called Glendora. No one knows where that is, but it's really far. My wife at the time, who was my girlfriend, she lived in Anaheim. So whenever we met and had dinner, it was like an event. It was like we had to make it like a thing. And so I had to put in my calendar, dinner with Lena Friday or meet up with Lena Tuesday. I just had to put it because it's a whole event thing. We're married now, if you saw my calendar, you will see Lena nowhere in my calendar. Not because I never get dinner with her, I always get dinner with her. If I don't have anything in my calendar, you can presume I'm getting dinner with my wife. Because it's a way of life. That's just kind of the way it is. And that's what the early church did. It was just a way of life. Oh yeah, we have people all the time in our house. We see people all the time outside of church. That's just the way it was. And it wasn't because they were super close. Again, 120 to 3,000. They didn't even know each other. 
but this constant flow of just sharing life together. That's why you college students, I know there's a lot of college students here who are visiting, the sweetest time that you're going to think you have a Christian fellowship is right now, because you're going to think, oh, back in college, I am so close to my community. And it's not because that community was so great. It's not because they were, you just clicked in ways you can't click with anybody else. It's because you have time to hang out all the time. If you're like me, you're, you just left your door open and you come home to your dorm or your apartment and someone's there. <laughs> you don't even know who's supposed to be there. Because that's how communal life was for you. That's how communal life is in college. And we think that's the sweetest time of fellowship. It's because you have time. And at, now you get older, it's really hard. It's really challenging. But there's something there. We're like, oh, it's the constancy of the community that made it feel like family. And that's what happened in the early church. Thirdly, they weren't just worshiping together. They weren't just uh, fellowshipping with one another. But also, lastly, they were serving each other. They were serving each other. The early church were known to meet the needs of one another. In verses 44 to 45, look what it says. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The early church was filled with different people from different social classes, and they noticed. Those who were rich noticed the poor, and they didn't go, what sucks for you? They would meet the needs. They would meet the needs of one another, share resources together. This wasn't just a community, in other words, that came to gain something from their gatherings. They came to give. They came to serve. In other words, the early church, they took responsibility of one another. When there was a need, the people tried to fill it. And that's so opposite to how we think of church today. We think when we come, you know who's to do everything at church? The leaders, the pastors. When our church first gathered here after uh, COVID, it was so sad that we were so looking forward to meeting indoors, nice and cool, air-conditioned building. But the first day we came here, air-condition was broken. And I came and I was like, oh my gosh, it's so hot. And someone came up to me going, hey, the AC is broken. I'm like, I know. They're like, what are you going to do? I'm like, do I look like an engineer? I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. <laughs> like, I, like, why are you asking me? <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing. They're like, no, let's do something. Like, don't, don't you have a number? I'm like, I don't know. What I just teach the Bible. Like, I don't know what's going on. And I realized, like, oh, they, you, you, the pastor is supposed to take care of that. Or I get messages regularly where it's like, hey, so-and-so, one of my close friends, you know this person at church, they're struggling. They shared with me their problems. Like, what are you going to do about it, Pastor Tom? I'm like, Me? It's your friend. What are you going to do? And they're like, oh, no, not me. Like, isn't this what you're supposed to do? I'm like, no. I'm supposed to shepherd, and if I know them, I'll care for them. But you're a member of this church. You're a member of this church. It's your family. I'll get involved, but are we getting involved with one another? Do we see it as a responsibility to care for the needs of one another? See, the early church, they didn't just lean on the apostles to do everything, but they saw themselves as a family. They saw themselves as a family, and they saw it as a responsibility to commit and meet the needs of one another. In the early church, they didn't just do these things. They were devoted to these things. Worship, fellowship, serving. So two quick takeaways for us. Perhaps for some of us, you're not experiencing church as family, not because you're not doing those things. You come to Sunday worship. You try to see church people. You try to serve every once in a while. It's not because you're not doing it. It's because you're not devoted to it. You're not devoted to these things. You come to Sunday worship when you can. 
so long as everything goes well in your schedule, so long as there's no midterms on Monday, so long as your work is not too busy, you'll make time to come to Sunday worship when it's not too inconvenient. And what ends up happening is you're kind of missing all the time. And after a year of that, you're like, huh, church feels weird. I should find a new church. Or some of us, we come to church and it's like, oh, I'll come as late as possible. And I'm going to bounce talking to nobody. And then after a year of doing that, we go, huh, church, how come church doesn't feel like family? Because you're missing family dinner. You're missing the family dinner every single week. For some of us, you're fine coming to church on Sundays. You'll say hello to people, but you don't see anybody Monday to Saturday. You're too busy. You don't have time. You have time for other things, but ah, not, to, not people in church, not my acquaintances. And that's where church, it's just not going to feel like family for you. Or some of you, you will make time for people when it's only not going to affect you too much. It's hard to meet the needs of people when it takes you out of your comfort zone because, ah, it's not, that's just not how I want to relate to the church. The church was never going to feel like family for you if that's how we practice church. We have to not just do the practices, but we have to be devoted to the practices. And that's why at our church, we have something called membership. We don't expect everybody at our church to do that. But if you want to be a member of the church, if you want to be family at this church, that's what the church is supposed to be, a family that is devoted to one another. Now, that's the first takeaway for some of us. We have to devote to the practices. Here's the second takeaway, though. Maybe some of you, you're like, I've been devoting myself. I'm here every week. In fact, I'm one of those guys who set up all the canopies every morning and clean up after service every Sunday, and I'm tired. I'm tired. Or maybe, hey, you know, I've been going to community groups because our church has community groups and meets midweek, and that's my way of meeting people, but you know what? I don't get much out of it. People are weird there, or they talk about things that's not very fulfilling to me. I'm tired. Or I've been serving for a long time, and I'm tired. I'm tired of being devoted to these things. And if you're like that, let me say, I feel you. I get you. You know why? You know how I resonate with you? Something changed in my life recently that makes me resonate with you. I became, this past season, a soccer dad. I now have kids, both kids, who do soccer, and man, you know, I used to counsel collegians, and they would tell me, like, their daddy issues. I'm like, what did your dad do? And one, some of the collegians like, you know, my dad, he never came to my soccer games. I'm like, are you serious? What kind of wicked father would do that? And now I get it. I get it. Your dad is not wicked. He's just human. Because when kids go to soccer, it is so much work. You have to wake up, get them ready, tie their cleats together, put on their shin pads, drive outside. It's super hot. You're sweaty. You have two kids. Their games are separated on different schedules. By the time you get home, it's 3 p.m. It's twice a week practice in the game. And what's worse, it's not fun to watch because my kids are not very good. They are not very good at soccer. It is the most boring thing ever to watch. Now, Imagine if I said, enough, hun, kids, I am no longer going to go to your soccer games until you make it fun. Until you get better and you actually learn to kick a ball, I'm not going to be there. But let me know when that happens. Let me know when it's not hot. Let me know when it's actually going to be entertaining. Then I will start going to your soccer games. If you heard me say that, you would think, that's messed up. It's messed up. However, I, I didn't say that. I don't plan on saying that. I go to all my kids as much as I can to their practices, to their games, not because I'm devoted to soccer, because I'm devoted to my kids. I'm devoted to my kids. The early church 
They were not devoted to these things because of the practices. They were not devoted to these things because they just love doing those things. They were devoted to one another. They were devoted to one another. And that's why in verse 46, the early church, you don't see them going, oh, I have to do this. But verse 46, with glad and generous hearts, did they do these things? Because when we are devoted to the people, it's a little bit easier to be devoted to the practices. For some of us, we might need to remember it's about the people. It's about the people who God calls to be our family. It's a new way of living. Now, it's hard to do this continually. How do we get devoted to the people like this? It can be hard because people hurt you. People sometimes, they wound you. People, they don't give back to you. And real quickly, we'll go to the last point, the new power. Why did the early church devote themselves like this to one another? It's not because they had history. It's not because of the commonality that's there. But I really think it's because of the context, the context of Acts chapter 2. Remember, the early church, they didn't just come together saying, let's do church. What happened? It's Pentecost. Earlier in chapter 2, Peter, he gave a message about the Messiah. He told all of them that God sent a Messiah to you whom you crucified, and it was Jesus, and you killed him even though he went out to you as your Messiah. But even though you killed him, God raised Jesus from the dead. He offers his spirit to you to give you new life to anybody who comes to him. And when Peter preached that message, in verse 37, this is how the crowd responded. Now when they, the crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. In other words, when the people heard this message, something happened to them that made God feel more real than that he ever felt before. When they heard the gospel preached this way, they learned and realized how devoted God actually was to them and it empowered them, therefore, to be devoted to one another. The more you understand this story, the more real it is that you have a heavenly father who adopts you as sons and daughters and puts you in a church family the more real that is, the more you will be able to have the power and motivation to actually care about this family. Going back to what I started earlier with, my story of my cousin Bora. Again, I told you, I didn't know she existed. I hung out with her mainly out of duty, mainly because she's my cousin, I just have to. But you know, Bora, she, uh, she stayed for like three weeks, I think, from Korea to America, or America. And I actually found out while she was staying, why I never heard of her, why she never existed in my life. And here's why. My mom, uh, she was her, she had a younger sister who was Bora's mom, who's my aunt. And she was my, so the aunt was my mom's younger sister. And they had a falling out, my mom and her sister. And so when my mom moved to Korea, or from, from Korea to America, they, they never talked since then. So imagine like, you know, 20, 20 so years or so passed, don't talk. Somehow they reconnected. Somehow they started to reconcile. And to the point where my aunt came to America to visit with her daughter, Bora. And I remember I, when my aunt came, I visited her as well. And I saw, oh, you're my aunt. You look like me. And we started talking and so forth. And I realized, like, huh, like, this is interesting. When I heard that story about what happened, when I actually met my aunt, and even after I met Bora, for some reason, it made me want to care for Bora more. It made me want to take care of her a bit more. Because family became more real to me. The story became more real. This is my mom's family. This is my aunt. This is my cousin. And it made me understand that, and I'm part of this reconciliation process 
with my mom and her sister. In other words, Laura really be felt like family at that moment. It motivated me to want to do her well. And in a similar way, the more deep you understand the gospel, the more deep you understand that all of us here share that same gospel truth, all of us here are united through Christ in the gospel, the more devoted you can be to this church through the gospel. God is your father. Jesus is his son. And through him, he adopts you into his family. And not just you, all of us who place our faith in Jesus Christ. And when the church actually believes this and starts to show we believe in it by loving one another in the gospel, you know what starts happening to the church? Life. It comes alive. Look how the book of Acts ends in chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. People were coming to this church, not because of this crazy evangelism project, this crazy revival night. They came because they just saw the church loving each other. People loving, worshiping, gathering, sharing life together, serving one another, and they go, what's that? People are like, what's going on there? To close real quickly, that's how I came to the church. If you don't believe that story, believe my story. I, didn't, I wasn't a Christian until the end of college. I, didn't, I knew about Jesus, but I'm like, yeah, whatever. It wasn't until I met a group of Christians that I'm like, oh, they really are nice to each other. Why are they buying each other meals? Oh, it's because they're freshmen. Oh, okay, but I was a sophomore and they bought me meals. I'm like, wow, they just, they buy everybody meals. And they just showed me a lot of love and care. And because of their love for one another and for me, I always credit, hey, it wasn't just what I heard preached, it's what I saw lived that made me really drawn to the Christian faith. And even now, as a pastor, you know pastors sometimes we get offered positions at other churches, like, hey, you want this position? Hey, I heard there's an opening here. I hear all these different positions. Some of them are bad, some of them are interesting. And you know what makes it always hard to think about leaving? Not the building, not the money, not the position, it's the people. It's the people, it's family. The power of the church, the power of the gospel is fueled through the spirit working through God's people and we carry about each other as family. And so as we close in prayer, can I challenge us to pray for a couple of things? I know all of you, you might be in different places. First time coming to a church, might be hard to do those practices, right? Or it might be your 10th year being at a church. Wherever you are at, what do you feel like you need to do to take a step forward to really experiencing church as family? For some of you, you have been held captive by this generation. You have limited your love only to your household. And perhaps God is challenging you to, hey, spread out that love. You're meant for more than that. For others of you, there might be a practice you have to not just do, but actually start being devoted to. Otherwise, it's gonna be really hard to feel the church's family. And for others, it's just, hey, you know what? All that means nothing to me because the gospel it doesn't mean much to me these days. Wherever you are at, wherever you feel the Spirit's convicting you, can we take a moment to pray in response, talking to the Lord, being honest with where we're at. And as I invite the praise team up, we'll take a moment to really pray and really consider what the Lord is saying to us. And afterwards, I'll close this in prayer. So let's take a moment in response to pray.